Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. We hope this show provides you with tremendous value. If you find the show impactful, please share with a friend and on social media, as well as subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I've got a fun conversation today with Bill of Fortune. So thanks for being here, Bill. It's great to be here. Also, for those that don't know, you're actually my uncle. So that's a little... You're actually my nephew. Yeah. A little little side note there. (laughs) So Very um, important one. Yeah. And you're a great nephew. Well, thank you. Well, you're a great uncle, too. Thank you. So, Appreciate um, it. If you wouldn't mind, just give us some context of your background growing up. Where did you grow up, and, and what was that kind of like growing up? Grew up here in Tulsa, mm-hmm. Oklahoma, and um, was the fourth of five children and a uh, big Catholic family, and um, very blessed uh, in many ways, uh, but we were like any family. Uh, I was born in 57, so you know, we in the early 60s and then through the mid-60s, upper 60s, um, I graduated high school in 1975, so most of my education was all Catholic education, but I had a great mom and dad and great grandparents on both sides, um, far different sides as far as where they came from. You know, one little fortune side um, came from South Bend, Indiana, and um, um, strong Catholic, and that was a family, my granddad came from a family of um, 11 or more. Yeah, <laughs> there was eleven, a lot of kids. Yeah, you know, and it's a classic American story. You know, they their house was uh, across the um, catty corner, across the campus from Notre Dame University, and um, know, as it goes, and there was a book actually written called The Gentleman uh, about him. Got and, it right here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm jumping ahead. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you had it on the list. Uh-huh. Thank you, but. It tells the story better than I can tell it, but the bottom line is he had to leave school to work, work for the family in, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade or whatever. And uh, the priest at Notre Dame gave him an education at night, and him and other kids in the community. Mm-hmm. And so later when he came to Tulsa and, and over the decades, did well in the oil business, uh, he gave back to those that helped him along the way, and he was a strong Catholic that went along with his Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. So you saw a lot of um, philanthropy uh, that he had and did uh, as um, and all over Tulsa, as you well know, LaFortune Park mm-hmm. in Tulsa, in Midtown Tulsa now, is um, an 18-hole championship golf course and has a unique par-3 course, which you, know, you don't see much. Yeah. Uh, and um, lighted, I think, at night as well. And a jogging trail everybody uses in a pool. Tennis court, right? It's a neat. He wanted, um, there's a cool story, you know, he, he gave to the county, the county, Tulsa County, on the land. But he wanted, he was a big golfer. Mm-hmm. And in Tulsa County, back in 1959 and 60, uh, there were really no public courses. Um, there were uh, a couple of country clubs, maybe the Tulsa Country Club and then Southern Hills Country Club. But he thought the public should have a chance to play golf. And that was one of the contributions to um, the county to build the golf course, mm. which is still there and been renovated over the years as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I would have been a baby when all that was happening. Literally, sure. Literally. Yeah. So. Yeah. So uh, growing up, like around him a little bit, since we've already gone on that topic, obviously we got the book here, The Gentleman. Um, were there things that you remember about him that were kind of instilled in you, not just from your parents, but also from him? What were those things that you remember 
being around him or as a sort of work ethic or was it just more so him being a grandpa that really cared about his grandkids well um, because of the park and and other things the family name was very well known Um, but as far as his grandson I had a lot of time with him he had a summer place at a state that we were able to go to as families he had four children who had 21 grandchildren so I was one of the 21. So um, uh, I was probably very fortunate to have as much time with him as I did. He passed away when I was about 18. Okay. And uh, so, But we, I had many, many summers with him and, and all sorts of holidays with him and time with him. Uh, he was a huge family man. So I think that was the first thing that he would have passed down, even indirect, not direct, indirectly, but in a way that he didn't talk about it. It was just mm-hmm. evident which is really the best way, yeah. uh, you know, like playing the game. He was really, truly a family man, and family came first and uh, in faith. So, you know, I remember when I ran for mayor, you know, mm-hmm. you know, what were your priorities? What faith, family, and Tulsa. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's the same thing for people like him. I mean, it was faith, definitely his Catholic faith. And then his family was just a very close second, you know, God and his faith, and then close, very close second was his family. Yeah. And he took care of them when he was able to take care of them. Um, and so family, faith, family, and uh, work ethic. And also um, a very important factor, I think, in anybody's life is how you treat other people. Of course, mm-hmm. we all know about the golden rule. Yeah. And but we all forget it all the time too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and we do. And just let's be honest, it, it, we do because we're human beings. Eh? Mm-hmm. And um, as human beings, we know from our faith that you know we will fail from time to time mm-hmm. in keeping the rules and keeping and doing what we're supposed to do. Which they say, number one, is treating others like you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And Joe LaFortune, my granddad, was a classic of that. Um, there's a lawyer here in town named. Jim Goodwin, he's a very well-known African-American lawyer, and his family's been in Tulsa forever, decades. And um, they're very influential uh, black family uh, over the decades. They have been, they still are. They uh, were publishers of the Oklahoma Eagle, which is the, uh, for lack of a better word, the black newspaper has been forever. Mm -hmm. And African-Americans in Tulsa turned to it for a lot of their news what's really going on in, in the community. And so um, I didn't know it, but I met Jim through my legal career because he's a lawyer and he practices law. He still does. He's in his, uh, at least in his 80s now. And, um, but I learned from him over the years that when he was a young man, a young African-American in Tulsa, and wanted to go to Notre Dame University, um, that my granddad got him into Notre Dame University because mm. by that time my granddad had given to Notre Dame was on their board was great friends with Father Hesburgh who's the famous um, president of Notre Dame for so many years and they became friends but I never knew that my granddad had done that well, why had he done that? well he did it um, because Jim was the son of a lady that worked for my granddad mm-hmm. and he took you know, care of the people that, that worked for him with him Mm-hmm. And um, had less than maybe he had. Sure. And so it was, uh, I saw that. Yeah. So I was a little kid, right, running around the house because we all were able to go to our grandparents' houses and play and play with the neighborhood kids and stay overnight and all that stuff. So we were, had blessings on both sides. So that was the LaFortune side. Mm-hmm. 
Now, my mom's side, um, the David side, that was their last name. Was okay. David. That's where my David comes from. So I'm William David LaFortune. Okay. Their last name was David, and their, their, um, their faith was a Methodist faith. And, but they were Texas Methodists. So uh, they were uh, rural people and, um, and great people. You know, just the salt of the earth people. Mm -hmm. You know, just peanut farmers in Texas. And uh, but my granddad had eventually matriculated up to the oil business, and by the time my mom was born, he was up in Kansas somewhere, Independence or somewhere, and then eventually came on down to Tulsa. And um, my dad met her, uh, my mother, Rosie Lee, David LaFortune, Rosie LaFortune later. My dad was known as Buddy LaFortune. Um, he was a scratch golfer and um, um, great guy. But he also emanated that, or not emanated, it's the wrong word, but he, you could see in him the same virtues, mm -hmm. um, values of treating people um, from no matter where they came from or what their walk of life was. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. and, and I just learned it from my granddad, my dad, and the other side of the family. They weren't as well known, they weren't as wealthy, excuse me, they weren't as wealthy, um, but they were hard workers, and they did well, and they were good people, and they were God-fearing. And, um, you know, they used to tell stories on that side of the family. And their little house they lived in is still over there off of Peoria here in Tulsa, which is Brookside. Nice. And it's just right down the street from the Brook. Okay. And a restaurant. And it used to be a Brook Theater when I was growing up. It was a movie theater. Okay. I saw The Sound of Music. Yeah. So some of your listeners were warned. <laughs> your viewers will see that. But I remember The Sound of Music. Uh, when it was out, everybody would go to it. They'd go like two, three, four times to it, uh -huh. you know, that, as a family. So it was a big deal. But I remember that. But their little house. Now, we've had, uh, I guess you call it gentrification, whatever you call it. But that whole street, and you know this is a home builder. Uh -huh. This whole street has been uh, redeveloped. All the little houses that were there have been replaced with newer, nicer houses. And then that, but that little red brick house, my grandparents still stayed, there. Yes, it's still there to yeah. this day. It's amazing it is. But um, they told stories of, of the depression when they were young, and um, and I had a grandmother David who had polio as a young woman, mm. and and um, survived it as a young woman. When polio was, I guess, a real scourge you know, back in the day in mm -hmm. the United States. And so uh, they tell stories about um, during the depression. Um, men of all races, you know, stopping in the back door and give them food, give them things mm -hmm. that they needed, uh, blankets, whatever, you know. So uh, some interesting stories on both sides of the family, but I think a lot of those values that I have and you strive to have every day because every day is a challenge, but mm -hmm. you, hopefully you got instilled them, and I think that's huge to have a legacy of, of uh, fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers, mm -hmm. aunts, uncles, uh, siblings. Mm -hmm. Sibling relationships are all another interview, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like you said in your stories, there's common themes of giving back, mm -hmm. service to other people, treating yes, people the right way, working hard. That's one thing. I got to read this book, and uh, I didn't really know all the context, you know, about, mm -hmm. about him, but... He was the guy who came from nothing and moved and went to Tulsa basically on a whim trying to get in the oil and gas industry right. and started working his way up and obviously grew into a great success, but always kind of had, seemed to be very much a give back mentality, spirit of serving others. So Absolutely. you had some great examples to look up to as you grew up. 
um, talk about, obviously, you know, I know we're probably going to get to it, but Cash Hall was really big for you, uh-huh. right? Sure. You know, that's one of the ways that he gave back is through Cash as well. Absolutely. Good point. Um, I graduated Cash in 1975. It was still all boys at the time. And uh, our class, graduate class, was around 40 guys. And to this day, um, three or four of those guys, not everybody's still alive, unfortunately, but three or four of those guys um, are still my very best friends in the world. Mm-hmm. And they even actually go back maybe a few years to Monte Casino and Marquette, too, a couple of them. But um, Casha was was um, a wonderful place, and it's a it's a place where you'll have those relationships forever. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it, I think, special in terms of um, you're part of a community that you can go back to. Mm-hmm. I think Oklahoma State, you've got your connections there, and you go back to the same part of Oklahoma State mm-hmm. and that community that you know. They know you, and it's the same at Kasha. So I think everybody has that spot. For me, it was Kasha, and, um, uh, and the education was important. I don't know if Kasha was the academic, um, as stellar in academics as it is today, um, which I think it is, and has developed, like many schools have. Back then, there was a little more of a mix of kids, I think, in, in terms of their academic abilities. Uh-huh. So were you at the top? <laughs> yeah, or were you, where were you at? I was, at, I was pretty high. You were at, the, really you're at the top. Yeah. I was one of those kids that I always um, was thankful for what I had. Uh-huh. It's always felt like I owed something to my granddad mm-hmm. and my dad and my family for all the gifts I've been given, you know, financially. Sure. And, um, you know, I just never wanted for anything. I mean, what a blessing that is. I mean, mm-hmm. you, get, you know, it's... You can either be a spoiled brat and just go on, or you can be thankful and maybe try to do something with your life. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's how you can show thanks to those that came before you that made it easy for you is by doing something with your life rather yeah. than just sitting back. And if you say you have uh, your clipping coupons, I don't don't think that's any way to live, mm-hmm. personally. Yeah, and no matter what uh, you know what your background is. It's just doing the best of what you've been given. Absolutely. Right? And, and what God's given you. Absolutely. I mean that. Yeah, so that's, that's key. Also, you know, sports were pretty impactful in your life. Yes. I, I thought we were going to get to basketball real quick, too. Yeah. Because, uh, obviously, uh, basketball is a big part of it. I don't look life. like it. I know, guys. But <laughs> but the fact of the back, matter is I worked really day, hard, which gets back to the work ethic, uh-huh. which we'll talk about. Yeah. But it really is. I mean, it was, um, I love basketball. Yeah. I had allergies and football, and I tried football, and I'm a big guy, but I had an older brother who was a lot meaner than I was, <laughs> and a lot, you know, just classic football type. Uh-huh. And here I came along, like, more of a chubby, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> asthma yeah. type thing. So basketball kind of evolved as to be my thing, and I just loved basketball. And I loved um, watching basketball, and I had heroes in basketball, like Walt Frazier and the New York Knicks was... Because I remember a coach back in sixth, seventh grade when I was really kind of transforming from a chubby, uh, worthless basketball player. <laughs> like, okay, so Cash Hall, seventh grade was your first year back then. Uh-huh. And I was on the basketball team, but I didn't get to play except the last two minutes of the last game. Mm-hmm. I got in. And we were 0 and 20 here, you know. Yeah. So my dad, Cash Hall, seventh grade boys team. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there might have been an A and a boys team, it'd be boys team, but uh-huh. there was two teams, but. but but that summer, I just said, I'm going to change it. Mm-hmm. And I started, I went to start going to camp, started working out, and shooting every day, all day, and following good advice. Like, you need to find somebody that you can emulate in the pros or college pros, really. And just emulate them. 
and make do everything they do until mm-hmm. I picked Walt Frazier. Yeah. Called Clyde. Yeah. And it was the guard for a guard for the NBA champion New York Knicks. And so I'd like to dribble like him and shoot like him. Yeah. And all those kind of things, and and really, it's just hard work. It was just repetition of shooting, mm-hmm. and because if you don't have, I didn't have the physical talents to to contribute much, but I had the shooting talents because I worked hard and just developed a really good shot, mm-hmm. and that's it lasted through. Um, age 50, you know, I was able to always play ball somewhere with people. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, you played for a long time. Yeah, I did on the we weekends, Saturday mornings, right? Well, you were playing was. like three times a week. You yeah, know, even 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, they cash it, of course. Yeah. Instead of coming home, right? Yeah. <laughs> you get to use their gym. Too. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't always easy. Yeah, to talk about it. The priest did do it. Yeah, right. there you go. Find a way. Right? Yes, yeah, sign waivers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's awesome too. But also, one thing is, you said your dad was a golfer. Your uh, grandpa was a golfer. Mm-hmm. Was golf ever a part of you know yes, kind of the upbringing was, for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was. Um, there was a time that we didn't live very far from Southern Hills, and when they would have big tournaments there, mm-hmm. um, my dad even knew some of these, like Chris Schinkel. Some of your older viewers will remember Chris Schinkel, ABC Sports. Yeah. What world of sports? Okay. Golf. And he had like, stayed at our house and stuff. Really? Us, and, yeah, okay. and things like that. And some of the golfers would stay, because my dad was so entrenched with golf. Mm-hmm. You know, they played on the Notre Dame golf team, the OU golf team, and the TU golf team. You might say to yourself, can he make plans with me, team? Yeah. Because yeah. he transferred every year. Right? You know, that's what he did. <laughs> but he was... Uh, he got the full experience. Yeah. And I'm, there's no doubt in my mind, you know, he was still like a... And I'm not a golf expert, as we'll see here in a second, but I mean, the two or three handicap or less or scratch uh-huh. up to age 50s and his 50s and stuff. So, really? I mean, yeah. Yeah, a lot of golf. Yeah, I heard he had a... Uh, well, I don't want to say that. <laughs> Temper, you know, some people, some people get frustrated with the golf course. I think, and, Absolutely, yeah. and I understand that he was pretty classic in that regard. <laughs> and he did confirm it later in life. When yeah, I asked him about it. Well, I always like to bring up sports. I don't always mean to bring it up, but there's so many lessons that you can learn through playing sports that Absolutely. not just shape you in the moment, but shape you uh, for the rest of your life down the road. So, things that you've learned through playing basketball, and even you know when you're starting off doing football, whatever it was, or, yeah. or golf. There's all these things that you learn that can be applied within different facets of your life, no matter what. And so that's why it's always interesting to look back and see what were the things that shaped you. Did sports shape you? What did you learn? And how did you grow from that? And so that's why I ask about the basketball component. And you played for a long time. So well, and it gets. I think you're getting to the core issue of team sports and mm-hmm. what value you get from. Um, being on a team. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll find out in life that no matter what job you have, even as president of the United States or governor of the state of Oklahoma, you have to have a team. A team that you never get anything done all by yourself. I think mm-hmm. that's the first lesson. Others, discipline and respect for others because as a teammate, you got to have that um, or you're not going to be much of a teammate. So, no, I'm a firm believer in sports and I coached a lot. And also relationships. You go back to relationships. I mean, you mm-hmm. I know you sitting here because I've watched your sports career, and you've had an extensive sports career in basketball as a player and a coach. But I know that I've got to believe. You never told me about them, but I'm gonna. I know from my experience that you've got to have numerous friends, really good, deep friends uh, for life that you developed in those basketball endeavors at Hall and Hall, and and also it's in, uh, when you coached in college. And to this day, your involvement. So, um, 
I think all the, that the relationships are important. I, I mean, I, I'm sitting here at 63 years old, and yesterday I spoke to a Sunday school class at Boston Avenue Methodist Church. And the guy who um, I was invited by a lawyer, government judge, to go speak about whatever I wanted to speak about. Yeah. And I did. But who introduced me was a guy named Mark Butterworth. And Mark Butterworth um, was two years older than me at Cashel Hall. And um, it looks like younger than I do now, but <laughs> which is always a good joke. But, um, but he, and he wasn't as good as, as players, I was. Okay. And I told everybody he was. But, yeah. but the point is, here I am, you're right. Yesterday, 2021, with a guy that I played basketball with, Gashaw. Mm-hmm. And we're laughing just like we are right now yeah. about that relationship and the fun things we did. Yeah. So, yeah, I think sports is fabulous. I, I think every kid can, that can find a sport, because I know every kid can't play a sport well. Mm-hmm. But there's so many varieties, so much variety now. I think there's just lots of different options. And anything that gets you involved with a team, working on a team, it could be some academic kind of competition. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a moot court for kids, you know, in high school now. Absolutely, yeah. And a lot of them have that. And, and those, and if you'll see a lot of these kids are not necessarily athletic. You can just tell they're not athletic kids, per yeah. se. But they are competing and they're having the same kind of fun. Absolutely. That and we have in basketball. Yeah, absolutely. Fun. There's so many ways, so many ways to, to learn those lessons, too. Um, so you go to Kasha, mm-hmm. graduate. Did you have a, an idea of what you wanted to do? Getting out of high school, starting well, to think did. about your future. Yeah, outside I really of, did. Outside I always was focused on uh, wanting to teach and coach. Teaching coach. High school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I love sports so much. Yeah. Just, this is where I felt the most at home. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. with that in mind, you wound up and you go to Notre Dame. I went to Notre Dame. You know, I went um, primarily. My granddad always wanted when I was twenty-one grandkids to go, and I really mm-hmm. felt. And I was, I think, um, I don't know about the other people's grades, but mine were good enough to get into Notre Dame, and. Um, so I really had a commitment to him to do that. Um, and it was a good experience. I was just still, I loved the outdoors and I really missed uh, a lot of my friends from Casha had gone west to school. They'd gone to Colorado Boulder or they'd gone to New Mexico or they'd gone to California. And so um, it was really cold in South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> really cold. Uh-huh. Yeah. It starts snowing somewhere around Thanksgiving. And it doesn't, you don't see green grass again on the on campus until about, I'm not kidding, like first of May. Just the football field. It really opens up. Yeah, 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 yeah they, they blow that off. Yeah. You don't realize how cold it really is. Uh-huh. Now, the other thing was, I, I do like, I did like the day. I was, you know, like any kid. And um, uh, Notre Dame had just talked about cash and guys. I think cash admitted girls for the first time like in 85 or in 1984 or 5. So when I graduated in 1975, went to Notre Dame, it was the second year that they had admitted females. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. So there were 6,000 men and 800 women my year. And you can imagine, <laughs> this fr- where freshmen fit in in the overall picture, <laughs> dating picture on campus. So I didn't really like that. The cold, that, you know, and, and I was childish, and I look back on it like most people do when they make decisions and they later in life are like, I wish I had another name degree. <laughs> but, you know, I, I made a decision to go west. My parents didn't like it, but I went west. I went to New Mexico for a couple of years at Catholic school there, University of Albuquerque. Came back to TU for a semester. But that was when I was kind of transitioning out of education. So I went to Notre Dame. I was going to be an education major teaching coach, mm-hmm. same when I went west, and that didn't change. My goal to do that never changed. 
Except that they told me that at some point, I think in Albuquerque, in the education program there, they told me something about lesson plans. That a teacher had to prepare one for every day. <laughs> and I just thought, that sounds like a lot of work. That's, that's, not, that's not coaching. And not that I never worked hard, I promise you. Even in this little forge, I worked summers yeah. and I worked <laughs> mowing the high grass in the summer and glow and all that stuff. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you, um, I um, was ready to not do that. Yeah. And I thought, what else? And I love the outdoors. Uh-huh. So it was natural to say, I'm going to go to a school where I can maybe be a park ranger, national park ranger, mm-hmm. or a forest ranger, U.S. Forest Service ranger. And I kind of was looking at schools at West. I looked at Utah State, which had like an unbelievably great forestry program. Mm-hmm. And actually went and visited there, and um, when we had really good friends in, in California, we had uh, my parents had their best friends in San Diego that we visited all the time, and then in, in Santa Monica, or LA, uh, Pacific Palisades, we had my my uncle Jim David, okay, who was from my mom's side, and mm-hmm. he had moved out there as a uh, oil guy for Chevron, mm-hmm. standard Chevron, whatever. He was there forever, raised his kids out there. Wonderful guy. He just passed away at ninety. Eight years old. Really? Fighter pilot, World War Two. Really? And just saw, you talk about salt of the earth. I was talking about that side of the family. Both sides were, but this guy was just one of the nicest guys, Billy, you know, want to meet in your life. Mm. And just the way he lived his life. Yeah. And the same values that we've been talking about. But um, I settled on a really rough, rough place, University of California, Santa Barbara. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's not in Santa Barbara. It's actually Goleta. Oh, it's, Goleta. It's, it's on the beach. Yeah. It's, it's, on, it's on the bluffs. The bluffs. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But um, it had a great environmental studies program. Oh, that was a tough place to go to school. It was tough. Yeah. yeah. It was tough. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, no, but it was actually excellent academics. It mm-hmm. really was. And you can imagine why. Why would a professor want to uh, move from any other part of the country to Santa Barbara to teach? Yeah. And get tenure there. <laughs> So you got, at the undergrad level, you got really good professors, mm-hmm. you know, Harvard people, and things like that. So I really kind of valued that. But it, and it was a tough, it was, you know, but that was really tough. It was. You had air chemistry, you had, you know, you had geology, biology, um, economics. You had to take all, because it was that variety. It was viral studies. Yeah. You know, looking at all the different things. But that's where I got interested in law. Really? Yeah, it's the first time. Because I didn't have a... We had no lawyers in our family. Like I said, it was mostly oil and gas guys. And and um, just any other profession. There was no nothing to do with the law in the Fortune or David families. Gotcha. So did you ever have any inclination of getting into oil and gas? Yes. Be- because it was the family, kind of the family After business, law school. Right. But basically, I decided that when it was time to be a forest ranger or park ranger, that what they were saying is you... Definitely, I had good grades and all that. So you definitely get a job, um, probably with the Parks National Park Service or the U.S. Forest Service. But but it's also in said, South Indiana, right? <laughs> well, this I was okay. in California, so I don't know where, where they would have put me. Yeah. But my understanding is they always put people really out in the middle of nowhere until you build seniority, and then you get to choose where you move. Uh, I think the FBI does that. I think all the federal agencies do that. Sure, kind of starting at the bottom. They make you go where they tell you to go, and then as you get some seniority, you're able to choose the cities that you maybe want to go live live in. I think that's the way it works across the board. But if you're a forest ranger or a park ranger, you're going to be like out in the little 
one of those little deals up in the trees that's looking for fires, you know, across uh-huh. the thousands of acres, and you're all by yourself. And I just really wasn't quite ready for that yet. And so, as you have known me, I'm a little more gregarious than a people person. Yes. I just thought, what else could I do? Uh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't sound like uh, you'd I'll fit real well by yeah. yourself up in, in the trees. I've worked, I've always done, had something, and I've always uh-huh. done my school, everything. I need a job, what would I like to do so? But, well, I always loved history, seriously, and history, mm-hmm. um, history and English. I was more of a liberal arts, and I don't mean politically. I mean liberal arts guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things I excelled in versus the hard sciences, and um, so it was a natural, really, to take the LSAT, and I did. And I don't know what I even got now, looking back on it, but I got enough, I guess, to get into some law schools. I applied to a couple in California, but I really wanted to come home. And, you know, I'd been gone a couple of years in California, and you, most people would come out and look where I was living at the time. I'm like, well, what are you doing? First of all, I had to study. Uh-huh. Second of all, <laughs> why would you ever leave this place? It's uh-huh. just like paradise. And the, the truth of the matter is it's very, very nice, but the weather's the same every day. Mm-hmm. And um, I like change of seasons. I like fall foliage. Uh, foliage. I, like, I like those things. Yeah. And I like a good thunderstorm. And it just, you know, it doesn't hurt somebody, but I like mm-hmm. the change of seasons. Yeah. And uh, and family. You know, and you get back to that. Mm-hmm. You get back to family, you know, and why you're here, you know. Your family's here, your mom's here, your dad's here, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, your wife's family is probably here, or near, near here. Close by, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it means a lot to come back to that. So, I came back to TU, University of Tulsa Law School. And um, what really got me involved in public service was my third year of law school. Now, of course, I met your aunt in law school, Aunt oh. Kathy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I met her my first year, and she was coming back from Duke, and I was coming from UCSB. And um, so we were just buddies, you know, the first year, just a group of friends. And uh, I was still pretty California the first year. <laughs> so she was still pretty East Coast. <laughs> so we, we were just friends. Yeah, but we started dating our second year and got married our third year. And, and um, But I, my third year, I got to intern with the DA's office. And that was really my... Um, I was telling people this today, some attorneys this today after hearing that I had, that um, that was really my entree to the courthouse. And where I really learn to love the courthouse if anybody can love the courthouse. Yeah. <laughs> I do. And I like, it's kind of like, again, a second home. I mean, my comfort level in the courthouse, of course, I've not ever been a party there. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so I, I have to, there's a disclaimer. Yeah. Right? There's a major disclaimer. Full yeah, disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. Never been a party. It may not be such a fun place otherwise. Yeah. But I really love my job. You know, I loved being an intern in the DA's office later. Yeah. Um, going from there. But that's where I got my first interest in the courthouse because, quite frankly, as a kid in Tulsa, I'd never been to the courthouse. I never had any family trouble down there. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know my way around downtown Tulsa, really. Yeah. Because I'd always lived in Midtown or South Tulsa. And um, it took a while to learn the streets of downtown Tulsa. Yeah. <laughs> a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So did you ever think about a certain type of law that you are going to get in before you started getting with the DA? Well, what happened at UCSB was there was an environmental law class, as I said. There was a variety of classes, and there was one big environmental law class taught by a real go-getter guy. Probably something you could just picture right out of California, environmental defense fund type of lawyer, but he was a great teacher. 
you know, they, he was fighting the liquid natural gas plant up on Point Conception at the time and all yeah. this and that. But I liked it. And then there was a follow-up course if you got a B or a B as in Bill, or better. <laughs> you got to take the second environmental law, too. You know, yeah. that works. And then if you do really well there, which I did, you get to take uh, environmental law three, which was really kind of cool. It was a simulated California Coastal Commission class. So you sat as the California Coastal Commission. Most people that don't live in California don't know anything about the California Coastal Commission, but you do if you live in California because they control, completely control, um, legally, all the land from the coast in about 10 miles, which you imagine is the most valuable. That's mm-hmm. why it's the Coastal Commission. Yeah. But um, it was really cool, and I liked that. And like I said, then I had the not wanting to be a forest ranger right away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and not a teacher either right <laughs> away mentality, so law school was the next step. Yeah. Well, before we venture into uh, your professional life, were there any certain experiences that really shaped you as a person when you were young? Not necessarily outside of the general experiences that I've talked about. I'm trying to think if there was any specific thing. Um, I think more specific things would be just people influences. Mm -hmm. Who influenced you? I think that's really key in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually your young person in high school is either going to be a teacher or a coach, mm-hmm. maybe a pastor uh, or a priest yeah. in a Catholic situation. Um, so I would look more at not a specific incident that changed the way I looked at things or what I wanted to do with my life versus the general philosophy of life I've already talked about, about giving back and being appreciative for all the gifts I was given compared to 98% of the world, you know, mm-hmm. seriously, and taking that seriously. But I had a great basketball coach, Rick Park, who was a former All-American at TU, um, still held the uh, cons- the um, consecutive free throw record for the NCAA when he was coaching me. I was like 48 straight or something. Okay. Yeah. It was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but he was he taught me, you know, how to shoot how to shoot well mm-hmm. and also to be cocky, a little cocky. Yeah. You know, not too cocky. <laughs> See, you, you got to be a little cocky. You do. You got to have some You got to have a little oomph. Yeah. All along your life, you do. I mean, you just never, um, if you want to succeed mm-hmm. and compete and succeed, and no matter what's going on in the world, even today, everything's going on, it's still competitive. Well, that's great. Yeah, I want to talk about yeah. that when we transition into a few things in a little bit. Okay. But, um, yeah, definitely want to talk about that. So you go from law school mm-hmm. and then you get into law. What was that experience like when you go from not just being in the classroom but actually being in the courtroom doing the work? Yeah. Was it very fulfilling or was it something like, oh, I need well, to maybe see how this works? Law school is a little different than med school and some other schools. And you, they, it's more of that, um, that, that uh, Socratic method where you know you read case law and you read, but it's not Oklahoma case law. It's not per se. You may do some of that, mm-hmm. but bottom line is you're not really taught how to practice law unless you do internships where you really are. Mm-hmm. And I didn't until I did that third year, but that was still just arraignments and things. It was yeah. carrying files around. Yeah. So how did I really know to file a case? And how did I know? Well, first of all, I had two years as a contract administrator right out of school with uh, Telex. For those of that don't know who Telex Computer Products, if you ever see football games now and you see the coach and he has his headphones and it says Telex, that company still exists and um, 
they didn't make just headphones for football coaches. Mm-hmm. They um, they made computers. And so when I'm back in 1983, um, four, five, when I worked for them, they had just gone through with this huge lawsuit called the Telex IBM lawsuit. And it was a massive national lawsuit. And uh, I think they won, actually. But they were booming. And they were here in Tulsa. I got out, I was lucky to get a job, blessed to get a job out of there. Or at that firm, it went from like, it's not a firm, that company. Sure. But they were selling computers and maintaining computers, and the contracts were just out the roof. My little department that I got hired into um, had one lawyer in charge of it. He hired me because he wanted a second lawyer around. <clears throat> the rest were administrative assistants. But it went from 27 people to 75 people in a year and a half. Wow. That's the growth they had there. <clears throat> Later, they were taken over by members. But I left. That gets back to the oil issue. I left there after a couple of years, even though I was doing really well. And I, they were great people, and it was a great company. And then we, I am glad because they were taken over by Memorex a few years later, and you know, everything went down from there. But um, not because of Memorex, I don't mean it like that, but yeah. it just your future at Telex wasn't mm. as secure as it would have been. Sure. But I had already gone to my dad's to work with him and my brother-in-law at the time, and um, he was starting to start a fledgling oil, fledgling oil company. But this was like 1986, <clears throat> about three years out of school. And um, the oil business crashed, like literally, the week. I'd already given notice at Telex. We'd had our celebrate, you know, good away celebrations and... I mean, it was like my first day with my dad and my brother-in-law at his office, and he took us to lunch. I was like, I don't think I can do what I told you I can do. Really? It happened yeah. right, yeah. literally right then. So I was just... So I went and tried to practice law. And you talk about the challenges and th- some of the things that you told me in preparation for this uh, that you face. Is just You just have to react and, and move on. Mm-hmm. You can't... You know, and I can't say I've always been that, that perfect. I'm, I, I have not been. But I've had so many different good things, bad things. I think that everybody has in life. So it's how you react to the bad things. And when I say bad, I mean bad. Some setback mm-hmm. in a job or a job you wanted you didn't get or a, a promotion you wanted you didn't get. What do you do next? You just sit back and take it or and just say well it's the way it is and complain and grumble about it mm-hmm. I mean it seems simple but it really isn't that simple because it's not that easy to do to, to, to just kind of suck it up and now what do I need to do next to, to succeed stay where I am maybe you know you don't know but you got to be careful in that regard but that was a setback. I mean, he's telling me I can't really pay you the salary you were making. I was making a good salary you know, mm-hmm. for those times. Yeah. At Telex. Mm-hmm. And for my age, I was only 27 years old. You know? Yeah. And so, um, basically, uh, after that, I tried to practice law with a friend of mine. And I tried to start a little law firm. But, again, you know, if you don't have some mentorship from some older lawyers, you don't start out in a firm where you got all these other lawyers around you and I hadn't. Mm-hmm then you really aren't getting the basics of how to draft a petition or a complaint, file it, you know, how that even works, all mm-hmm. that. So it was kind of like floundering a little bit. And so one day I was looking at the Bar Journal, the Oakland Bar Journal was coming out once a month. At the back it has ads, you know, for job openings or 
whatever, court reporters, transcripts, <clears throat> legal stuff. And I saw this advertisement for um, the Attorney General's office for Assistant Attorney Assistant Attorneys General is the proper English. And um, there's a little story behind that too, politically. I'd actually was trying to get into politics and I'd actually helped his opponent <laughs> do a fundraiser <laughs> before the November election, before this ad after the election came out in the Bar Journal. But I applied. Uh-huh. <clears throat> That's a sure way to get the job right there is help the opponent. Well, I didn't go down to say all that to him. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Robert. <laughs> it worked out. Okay. He'll forgive me, I know. But um, he probably do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not one of those things that, that, uh-huh. that, that doesn't get around. But when, he, when I interviewed with him, um, he knew my uncle Robert, former mayor, <clears throat> said that he had been on the St. Gregory's in Shawnee. That's where he came from, Shawnee, Oklahoma. Um, he'd been on the board. They just give my golden award. Oh, you knew my name, family. You know this and that. Like the Notre Dame on my, even though it won you, but he liked that. Yeah. And um, another reason to finish your degrees. Yeah. The good schools. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go off to another one. Yeah. Even though I went to another good school, yeah. but but um, anyway. So I interviewed with him, and this is really a good lesson, I think. All I can tell you, I can't tell you it will work or not. I can only tell you it worked for me. I don't want to lose anyone out there, your listenership, with a job, lose a job for them. But what I did was I had a great interview. And so it was a November election for Attorney General, Oklahoma Attorney General. I interviewed with him around Thanksgiving. And so we go from Thanksgiving all through the holidays in December. And I would call them all the time, asking had he made a decision, had he made a decision. <clears throat> I'd call and I almost got to know his assistant, you know, to answer the phone. Mm-hmm. Almost back in those days, it was all landlines. And yeah. Like that. So, um, this is 1987, and basically, or 86, the end of 86. But finally, one day, he said, um, You're hired. She did. He's going to hire you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're doing it just to get you to stop calling. Yeah. Hey, but that's a, that's a great that lesson. I've never heard that said. story, but yeah. that's a great lesson in itself yeah. on persistence. Absolutely. You know, how many times do you, you, we get to see the end result, but we don't get to see the backstory. Yeah. You know, we, we know you had a life in politics, but they don't get to see the hard work and the countless calls. Right. Maybe even at, at times felt like they might have been annoying. Absolutely. You, you did the work to allow yourself to have the opportunity to step through the door. And then obviously. That's what I'm saying. I don't know, I'm sure it works for everyone, but. Sure. It does. The, the bottom line rule of it is not the calling every day and maybe being a pest as much as persistence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just. Whenever and I, these little themes of wanting to get the job you want to get in life, <clears throat> these little themes like that are important because you're you're always um, looking to um, you know go to the next level. You just are, but they're, they're important that this the not giving up and, and not letting setbacks. But persistence is so important in, in everything. One of those little themes is that always want, always let the person that you're applying with. So you're looking to get a job, mm-hmm. the job you really want. You gotta let them know that. Mm-hmm. You can't go in the interview with them, yes. whether it's online or in person, and act like you're not really sure about why you want the job. You better know why you want it mm-hmm. and really want it. You should need to be there. I mean, some people do just need the job. Yeah. 
So there's jobs that you just need the job. You're going to get that job. Mm-hmm. Generally, I mean, it's a it could be a services job of some kind, but the job that you really want, going to pay you better, life's going to be better, and you know you're qualified to get it. Let them know you want it, and you'll do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just want to let you know I'm very serious about this job, and if you take a chance on me, I won't let you down. Yeah, I'm giving you my word right now. You're going to never be more pleased with an employee than with me mm-hmm. if you give me this opportunity. Doesn't always work. But I don't know if they hear that from everybody. No, absolutely. Well, that goes back to, too, another point is that, you know, when we let people know what we want, mm-hmm. then people have an understanding, oh, you know, Bailey is about this or Bill is about this. Mm-hmm. So when things pop up, like, oh, I think Bill wanted to get in, in that realm of work or whatnot. So that's on their mind. Yeah, I know a kid who's um, looking at you know, law school and then looking at what city does he want to be in. And so he's going to interview with these different firms from different cities and then he wants to know, well, should I apply to a lot of different firms in a lot of different cities? Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is you can do that, but you need to tell each firm in each city why you want to be with them in that city. Yeah. And that makes it much harder. Yeah. Then you start narrowing it down. Okay. Sure. Then maybe it's just, I want to be in Dallas. So I'm just going to interview with firms in Dallas. Or Chicago, or whatever city it is you want to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's a great lesson in itself. You got to let people know what you want. You got to know why you want it. Absolutely. And then you just got to go get it. So, Absolutely. Right? That's, right. And never, you know, and if you don't get it that time, you keep, go for the yeah. same job if it comes open again. Um, especially, you know, sometimes they'll tell you. They mean it. You know, if, if we have another opening. Mm-hmm. Some don't. Yeah. But some do. And so you can tell usually. You just have to be a little discerning uh, you, if they're serious with you or not. Yeah, you might like this. And I've maybe mentioned this before, but you've heard of Bob Goff at all? Or know of Bob Goff? Yeah. Love does? Yes. He has a story about when he was uh, trying to get into Pepperdine Law School. It's funny. You guys have kind of a similar, uh, you know, goals in terms of he wanted to go be in the U.S. Forestry Service. Really? Park Ranger. So he went up to, I can't remember. I have to re- relook at the book. But he went up to... Uh, Cal, I don't know, one of those one of those California schools up in the sure. mountains. I can't remember what the school's called. So <clears throat> I'll remember it once we're done. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but anyway, he wound up deciding to get out of that. He went to Pepperdine, didn't have really any credentials. And he sat like every day for I don't know how many days straight in front of the law office and asked for the law professor, will you let me in yet? We let me in. We let me in. And he wound up getting in. Yeah. yeah. He became a, a prominent lawyer on the West Coast. And is that right? Had a great career. Yeah. I'm gonna have to give you. Yeah. Yeah. There, that's, that that's, is really. A f- yeah, but it's just being persistent. Absolutely. Being persistent, and no matter if it's something that you really want, you gotta go get it. If the door is shut, you know, crawl through the window, open it up, figure out a way to get through, or yeah. just just find a way to make that happen. Well, it gets back to even the, my granddad again. I think when he first got to Tulsa, yeah, he heard. You, hey, there's some oil and gas down there. You might be able to, make, you know, yeah. a young man might be able to make it down there. Yeah. Back in 19, you know, you're talking 1919. And, um, but when he got here, the word, like the story, maybe in the book, and what I heard was that he would, you know, Tulsa probably didn't have that many high rise buildings, but whatever ones they had, um, he would go at the top and, mm-hmm. and knock on each door of each floor to, for a job. Yeah. It just work his way down the, building absolutely <laughs> until he got one yeah and he wasn't someone that had tons of credentials at the time he didn't have any he didn't understand you know fortunately they got this and that but the fact of the matter is he didn't know anyone mm-hmm. he didn't have any money of any kind 
didn't know anyone, had a brand new wife, and nothing else. So it can be done. But it's it can be done in today's America. Yeah. Yeah. It's one to work. It takes, um, and then also that gregarious, outgoing nature um, that's true, that's mm-hmm. sincere, not a fake. Yeah, absolutely. And we've all seen the fake outgoing natures of people, and I'm not criticizing those kind of people, but it doesn't take much to figure it out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And people, um, they can discern pretty quickly if you're the real thing, if you're really truly a good, uh, nice person. Yeah. person that really cares about them, which kind of gets into one of the real keys to life is letting other people talk about themselves. You know, I know you've heard that, but that, that, yeah. that's a real key in marketing or sales or, or anything where you want to become friends with others. And it is an amazing thing yeah now you shouldn't do it if you're not sincere absolutely yeah you should always be sincere <laughs> then really listen you know yeah. don't just say it to get ahead of the relationship or something uh-huh. but but when you say it and you and you really do listen to their life it's been found i think from research to be very much a relationship builder absolutely well there's something about authenticity just being yes. for yourself yes and there's something about especially in this day and age just being present, asking questions, and listening. You know? It's huge. It, it makes a big difference. Because everybody's a talker these days. Sure, I'm yes. one of the worst. Uh, <laughs> I'm a talker. So you can we're, talk all, we're all talkers, especially but, on but things it, we it like. Is, it really is. It's so hard sometimes. Just as You need to be calm and listen mm-hmm. to others. And yeah, that's a great and lesson. You will learn things, too. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like it gets back to your God's plan for your life, which I'm a big believer in. Because think about it. We all know so many different people that have so many different talents. Mm-hmm. And they have great talents in a certain area, like me with words and things, versus me with a car. I mean, I can't even change a tire. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, some, but there's a guy that can change a tire and fix an engine in 30 minutes, but uh-huh. they can't understand maybe. You but you know, don't want to stand up and speak in front of thousands of people, right? No, right, exactly. So we're all different, uh, gifted with different abilities and talents and skills. And so when we can align ourselves with those things in our work, in our relationships, it makes the world a better place because we're living in our best self. Yes. And uh, it just is, is, it's a much better place for us to be living in. So it's, yeah. it's critical That's to be you, able to you that. Build excellence. I know that's yes, your, absolutely. Your theme. Yeah. And there really is. I mean, you want to build excellence in your life. You treat me, you need the golden rules, number one, because there's nothing bad that can come from that. Mm-hmm treating others um, the way you want to be treated. It's all, even when they don't treat you the way you want to be treated. That's really the test. Yeah. It really is. It's a tough test as a human being. You yeah. know? Um, but you, I think um, you realize how valuable it is to not lash back out at somebody that, is, it doesn't mean you don't stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. And I've learned that as life's gone on. And you know you just don't you don't need to be aggressive, but you can also can't let people, especially if you get in public life and things. People are going to say things about you that are true, and so you just have to understand that mm-hmm. people aren't going to like you. Um, they don't even know you. Yeah. I mean, they can. I mean, it's just, but it's the way it is. And so once you can understand that, that it's nothing you can you can't control. It. It's the old saying, you know, what can I control? What can I not control? Mm-hmm. Um, and give me the wisdom or whatever it is to, to know the difference because there are things you cannot control in your life and mm-hmm. you just but there are things you can control control what you eat control what you drink control when you get up control when you go to bed control what you watch on TV what you think 
right. and that all bleeds into what you think. Yeah, and really, what you think is is critical mm-hmm. in your own uh, mind in terms of all the things we've talked about. You, know, you just have to um, have to realize that what you take in, uh, whether it's from television, uh, music, whatever, other people, and and the type of people you're around, it's going to become part of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Be around, be around winners, I and mean, that's a big part of life. I'm sorry, it is. Um, and was that old? There's so many old sayings that go with things like that. <laughs> you know, mother company you keep. Yeah, I remember that one. And, you know, there's uh, other ones that are just uh, that came with my generation more, but, but um, there's some truth to it too. Oh, absolutely. Not absolute truth. I mean, you can have friends that might be on the wayward track. Sure, but it's not gonna get you on the wayward track, and you can help them. Yeah. Maybe you could be there to help them. Well, there's like the quote, you know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Yeah. That's kind of... I think that's particularly true for young people. Mm -hmm. I really do. But I think maybe all ages. I mean, I just... um, Because everybody, no matter what hell they are, young they are, they have a future. Mm Mm-hmm. And most of them want the future to be a good future. Yes. I don't know many people that that don't. Excellent future. Yes. Yes. So, you know, I think the things we've been talking about are all parts of just little simple pieces that don't cost you any money. Well, and going back to what you're talking about, the golden rule, treating people the right way and treating people how you'd like to be treated, Mm -hmm. you know, that plays effect. Let's just, you know, the situation that happened to you where you jump into a new opportunity and all of a sudden it doesn't go the way you planned. Well, because you treated people the right way, throughout law school or just your entire life, opportunities came about because, oh, Bill, you know, he's looking for a job. He, he's a good guy. He, he treats people the right way. He's a good candidate for the job. Bailey, you just hit that right on the head, and I can tell you that's true. That is a, a very true statement in terms of I've heard that. Mm-hmm. I, I hear it to this day. Um, I heard this lawyer today told me something that David Moss, who was the district attorney here, and Tulsa for 14 years, and it was the one that gave me my job, my third year law school. He was a very strong, he was a, a deacon in his church, a Baptist deacon, very strong in his faith, in his marriage, and his family, and his ethics, and his morals, it, just unbelievably so. But somebody, um, this lawyer today, just today, said, I remember, you know, Dave Moss, because he passed away back in, uh, that's how I became DA, unfortunately, he passed away, a sudden heart attack, um, back in 1998, no, 95, sorry, 95, and um, so it was a real tragedy, but he was so well respected, he's one of those guys that even today, so he was a young man, he was only like 40 when he passed, Mm-hmm. It was just he was working in his garden, had his sudden heart attack on Thanksgiving Sunday, you know, after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a special judge at the time and um, enjoying it. And I would probably never, that's how this conversation is today came up. I never left the bench. Yeah. Because um, I love being a judge. Uh, but that, that opportunity, the, the stars were all kind of aligned for me to make a run for it uh, after we paid all the due respect. And that was what happened. Some of the guys didn't pay due respect. Mm. They wanted that job. And yeah. the governor did not appreciate it, as I understood it later. He respected the people that respected David and his death before they started jumping in and all that. You know, want the job. Want the job. And bugging him and have people bugging him for the job. So, um, but this guy this morning said, um, this afternoon, said that... Um, 
I was at this deal, and I remember David Monson. There was only one person in this room that I think could do the job that I've been doing, and that's that guy over there pointing to me. Well, I hadn't remembered that. Yeah. I don't know if this guy remembered it correctly or not, <laughs> but it is what he said. And yeah. I thought, that's pretty neat, you know? That's, that's pretty neat. neat. Especially yeah. coming from somebody like him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always consider another old saying. We're doing a lot of old sayings today. Yeah. Consider the source. Consider the source. <laughs> David was a good source. There you go. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you wound up becoming a DA. How old were you and all that? Uh, I was pretty young when back going oh, yeah. through going through, getting these jobs that I was was so blessed to get. Um, so I was a special judge. I worked at the AG's office and the AD, in the DA's office as an assistant DA from. Uh, 87 all the way to 93 and then I got appointed as a special judge in 93 and I did criminal cases for a year and divorce cases for a year and juvenile cases and then that DA opening came up and so I was blessed again to get the appointment from Governor Frank Keating at the time and um, became the DA and so I was I was 33 when I became a judge and I was 35 when I became DA yeah, so really pretty young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very young. young. I thought. Yeah, I thought hey, I'm really young with these jobs. Yeah, <laughs> but no, there were challenges. You know, there were always challenges. There yes. was unique challenges, particularly in the DA's job. <clears throat> when I took it over, there was a, a, some legal reversals of cases. Some case reversals of cases, like a lot of them, like ninety murder cases and child abuse cases and rape cases, that mm. just all gotten reversed. Um, right before I came on and right before David passed and um, that were all based on a judge giving a jury instruction of presumed not guilty versus presumed innocent. Mm-hmm. And he was told by the appellate court over the years to stop doing it and he would never stop doing it. And finally one day they, guess what? Yeah. We're going to reverse all these cases. So I inherited that. Mm-hmm. And then again, we're talking about challenges. That, the DA's job, as I think most people listening or watching can imagine, is not an easy job anyway. So you, you know, you file like fourteen thousand new cases a year in Tulsa County, felony cases, and each of those cases can have well, that's misdemeanors too, but each of those cases can have several counts of yeah. charges, individual charges. So it's a heavy duty job, and then you dumped these reversals and retrials on the on the office. We, in fact, we went. So here's a challenge: How do you do it? You gotta be a pro- You want to be a leader. You want to be a problem solver. Leaders are problem solvers. Mm-hmm. I've, I mean, you you do learn these things as you as you get older. You just realize that's what leaders really are. They saw they have vision. Got to have vision, and a purpose and a plan. They also have to be a problem solver because none of that's going to happen over here if you're not able to solve the problems that come along every step of the way, and execute a, a vision. It's, it's just the way it works. But what do, I, what do I do? Well, I had a state representative, was a friend of mine. He passed a bill that allowed me to appoint special assistant DAs. So I went and got a bunch of assistant, older assistant DAs who had been in, in the office years past. And they appointed them on specific cases to go take those cases. And that's how we helped handle that load. And I eventually went on to private practice. I got an offer to be a partner at Norman Wilkemuth Law Firm. Uh, in Tulsa, which was one of the top law firms, and at that time, uh, I just felt like that was the best thing for my family and I. Uh, even though I loved prosecution, loved the courthouse, kind of took me out of the courthouse for the first time, really, in long, yeah. most of my career. But I was still there because I was still practicing law. Mm-hmm. I was still down there every day as a civil lawyer. So being so being young, taking on some of those positions, 
did you ever have any self-doubt like man why you know why am I doing this at such a young age when you have guys that are way older than you that have way more experience? Was that in your mind at all, or you know, had you built uh, confidence up to that point? Or like you had some inner confidence. So I think some of that goes back to our original discussion about family. Um, I was fourth of five kids, so you you kind of learn um, to be competitive in that kind of environment with your parents. But I had a mother and a father, but mother particularly that really always built my confidence up. So I think as a parent, you really need to realize how important you are to your kids being successful later in life uh, by telling them how great they are every day, you know? Um, my mom did that. I mean, I was like king of the world every day. So when you think, when you're told you're king of the world, you kind of start to think you are, and you act that way, and you perform that way, and you try to be the best you can. Not that I was, and not that I am today, but you try. But it sure helps when somebody's telling you that you're great. Absolutely. Go get them. You're great. So I would just really think that's so important, especially today's kids and youth, and letting them know they need their parents and they need to be told they're great and they need to be supported. And they'll be successful. And I promise you, you do that for them. And that, that will happen. So I had a mother that did that for me. So I never really thought that I was too young to do anything or to do anything successful. Um, I remember there was a time in law school after my first year that, um, this is not a story I tell a lot, but it's a true story, and I think it happens to people. You know, you get, you talk about doubt, right? You talk about, well, maybe, because I went from being, what, teacher to coach to a forest ranger yeah. <laughs> to now a law student, uh-huh. right? And I'm going to be a lawyer maybe someday, and I just finished my first year, and law school's not easy, it's very difficult, you know, um, most people that get straight A's through even difficult colleges and they go to law schools and it's like, oh my gosh, I got an A, a B, and two C's? Yeah. You know, how'd that happen? So, um, I'm just probably one of those kids at the time. Uh-huh. But, but I also thought, you know, I wasn't, like I didn't come from a lawyer family, so I didn't have people saying, you're going to be a lawyer like dad or granddad or grandma or mom. So, I, you know, it's like, um, I didn't have that like, I have to be a lawyer in my mind. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can go do something else. What? I didn't really know. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounded good. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, I remember calling my mother and telling her, you know, I think, you know, Mom, it was like early summer, I think, mm-hmm. after my first year. And I remember I was in my house, I just said, you know, I was thinking I'm, I may take a year, you know, sabbatical and go do something else for a year. I think that's pretty much what I want to do, Mom. You know. <laughs> and there was a silence. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, Hmm. You know, hmm. I don't know, Bill. I don't know if I'd do that. You know, if you do that, a lot of people don't really ever go back to school. Yeah. I think you ought to stay where you are. I'm like, landlines. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So I didn't get the affirmation I thought I would get. Uh huh. You need to do what makes you happy. Because sometimes as a parent, it's not saying you need to go do it. You need to make you happy. Yeah. It's making you happy. What you think makes you happy may not be the best thing at all for you as a, as a person, as a human being. But that was a really critical moment now. I'm looking back on it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was that close. I was so close to doing something else. Yeah. Again, I don't know what it was going to be. Yeah. But it was something else besides law school. Well, you know what's amazing is... is I've talked to many people, you know, whether it be in athletics or business, 
it's always these little moments like that. Like yeah. there's always these little moments where there's some doubt or there's some thoughts about maybe this isn't what I should do. Right. But always on the other side of the people that have, you know, succeeded and passed through that is that they just, they, they say, you know what? I'm going to keep going. And they keep going. And all of a sudden they come out the other side. But that little moment could have flipped and turned them. Absolutely. In a whole who different direction. Yeah. That. Who knows? You know, the Not second, saying that would have been bad. No. But it's pressing through those times that you have self-doubt or challenge mm-hmm. and you push into, okay, you know what? I can do this. I'm going to go, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. You know, there, and I, the, I want to talk about my wife, Kathy, because it, after we got married in third year of our law school, then these opportunities came after that and they came as we were having children and in, in the, in the stress that that puts, it's not stress, it's a joy. But yeah, who's taking care of this little baby <laughs> today? You know, come on. There's there's the responsibilities uh-huh. that come with it, and with the joy. And so, I was commuting back and forth as an assistant attorney general. You know, when you're going to that. So, but but again, having that mother or your wife or your significant other, it doesn't have to be a wife or husband. You know, whoever loves you, it could be a sibling, and supports you. But whoever will really tell you the truth. Mm. That's really a key. My mom was telling me the truth. It's not a good idea yeah. to leave law yeah. school after your first year. You know, you've gotten through the worst part of it and stick with it. And so my wife did the same thing for me as we went through um, our early, she was a lawyer too in practicing law. And then um, having the first little girl and then another little girl, I was still commuting. But as opportunities came up, you know, she would be the first cheerleader to say go for it so I think that's important to, again it's who you're surrounding yourself with mm-hmm. you're surrounded with negative people that are kind of don't have a lot of hope in their life or if they do you don't really hear about it much yeah. <laughs> all little, you hear is all this it's a little the, downer yeah right yeah. it's a heavy downer but um, uh, she was a huge part because I remember like the night that we found out Dan Moss had passed away you know we were all really sad but there's, like I said, some of these people already calling, you know, people like, eh, you know. Yeah. And I, it was too early. Like, his funeral wasn't until late that week later, which is one of the biggest funerals I'd ever seen in Dulles County. Mm. I'd never seen more people at a funeral. It was really amazing. But um, we said a lot about him. Um, very interesting. But, um, you know, Kathy was the first one. We were sitting around the kitchen table. Old kitchen table, <laughs> where all of the good things happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ready to get to table. Um, she just said, "You know, you you need to go for that. You know, what a legacy for your son and and you and and to be the DA, to be the Dallas County DA." Because so, so, I was happy, as special judges, happy as I could be. Yeah. My favorite job by far would be a judge. Yeah. But um, you know, so I had her pushing in in a positive way. You know, you don't want to push in a negative way, people, but you don't want to support them and say, you can do it. You, know, you could be the DA. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And you start thinking, I could be the DA. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think it's important too. You have self confidence, but hopefully you have people that so you have supportive people around you. Yeah, providing positive affirmation. Absolutely. It's right? really important. Hey everyone, it's Bailey Miles. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope you found value in the show. And if you enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing the show with a friend, subscribing on Apple or Spotify podcast, writing a quick review, or leaving a five-star rating. 
When you do that, it really helps get the message out and allows more people to hear these stories and help them build excellence in their life, leadership, and legacy. If you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email. It's bailey at baileymiles.com. Follow us on social. We're on all the different social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Or check out our website at baileymiles.com. Once again, I'd love to hear from you, so definitely do that. And then thanks again for joining me on this journey. And remember, life begins at the end of your comfort zone.